Who am I? I'm an American billionaire investor. I'm a businessman, former real estate attorney. I'm vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, conglomerate controlled by Warren Buffett. And I'm the closest partner and right-hand man to Warren Buffett. Luke, who am I? The great Charlie Munger. Charles T. Munger. Boom. Not known to everyone. Warren Buffett's more famous. But so we'll talk about Warren Buffett at some point. He, I've been mentioning him a bunch in the podcast before, but we'll get to him later on. I have ideas for you, Warren. I know, Warren, you listen, so shout out. <laughs> shout out, Warren. But we are going to talk about Charlie Munger. The, wow, what a man. Munger of wisdom. That, that the uh, little Who Am I? That's a fun game. That's uh, That was from Wikipedia. I think that just says a fraction of what there is to say about the great right-hand man of, of Warren Buffett. Who the, who the hell is this guy? Uh, Luke, how would you describe who? Charlie? Mm. Oh, okay. Why is he actually important? Why is he important for a young person like you or I? Well, he is important because he's incredibly wise. He's lived a long life. So <laughs> he has far. lived a long life. And from, from analysis, it seems like he's lived pretty consistent uh. to certain core core values or core principles that he preaches. So that's, that's why I can think of primarily yeah. that he would be um, valuable to anyone young is seeing someone that's gone through such a long life and still upholds very similar values. Yeah. He's a very rare creature. Mm. Very, very rare creature. We're looking at him, put it this way. We're looking at much more than his investing ability. The fact that he could make billions of dollars. Mm. I kind of sum him up as no bullshit as well direct comments but also broadness of thinking and perspective famous for his mental models his lattice work of thinking and philosophy he's him and buffett are widely revered and cherished for that and he's stepping back from a lot of his commitments now but still active at the age of 98 Incredible. born in 1924 obviously wow and he's you know lived most in his life in Omaha, Nebraska. He's just an extraordinary person, served in the military, lost a child when he was just a bit older than us at the age of 30, living in Pasadena, I think. And then at the age of 35, met the famous Warren Buffett at a dinner party. And I think he used to work for Buffett's grandfather or something when he was younger or vice versa. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I wanted to dedicate today to why he's important on a very deep level. What can we learn from Charlie Munger? So you listen to the countless YouTube videos on him and his very famous book, Poor Charlie's Almanac, one of the best books I've ever read. And he's in good company. So it says a lot. And I think you won't learn as much about picking a stock as you will about life and how to live it. So even though there's a ton of YouTube videos on him and Buffett, they have one thing in common. You're pouring over it initially to find out how do I make billions of dollars like they have. What you tend to get is 90% of it is not financial at all, but is life advice, good values, and, and sort of overarching wisdom. Mm, absolutely. I think with Charlie specifically, add, to add to your point is whenever he opens his mouth, because he's very careful with his words and doesn't speak, so there's no fluff, you know, yeah. it's, you're going to get something wise. Yeah, exactly. He's just so considered and precise. And his words can be like an axe. He's got that wit and, and humor. He's not afraid to fire shots. He reminds me a little bit of Taleb in that sense, but he has a bit of a different punch and style. And he also, yeah, gosh, he, gosh, he's funny. Poor Charlie's Almanac is a huge book. Have you read it? Or did you go through it all? No, I haven't. No. Yeah. It's about 700 or something 
pages. It's 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 a behemoth. It's got like eleven speeches that he's done plus all this other stuff. So I've we've unpacked it, and people will be getting pretty much all of like my biggest takeaways in these seven episodes. That's a good that's a good kind of shortcut, I guess, or preview that book. But another point I wanted to make is that yeah, why I think it's so valuable is because it's a powerful bridge. Because it's been alive for so long. I think of something that Jeff Bezos said that Jeff Bezos, the um, uh, Amazon founder Mm. says, people, have you ever seen this clip? People always ask me what's going to change in the next 10 years. They want to get an edge on technology and what's going to change. He goes, no one ever asked me what's not going to change. He goes, you can build a whole business based on, and I would argue extrapolate that you can build a whole life around what's not going to change. Right? Like for, for Amazon as an example, People are never going to want slower service. They're not really going to want higher prices, not for that stuff anyway. You know, they, they value speed, they value customer service. They're always going to want those things. So I kind of apply that logic to analyzing someone like Charlie Munger. Lived a long, prosperous life in every meaningful way. So what can we learn from this man about what doesn't change? And... One of his favorite ideas we'll talk a little bit about is inversion slash elimination. He loves the idea of flipping a problem around to shorten the time it takes to solve it. For example, when first trying to figure out what you want to do, say, for example, what do I want to do with my life? That question. What do I want to do in my career? Those sort of questions. What do I want to do next? His inversion method, which he takes from math, is to flip it on its head and say, first, what do you definitely not want to do? All right, so he's, he's big on that. And we'll talk about that in one of the other episodes. And, and that's a good example. Like what, what does not change in a quality human life? Cutting through the, the, the noise of new technology, new trends, social media, everything that changes. What is foundational? What is timeless? What can we observe? And so I kind of boiled it down to five things I think are incredibly important. Yeah, the t- firstly, we've already discussed the timeless nature of his wisdom. I think it's very powerful to understand that. The principles that have led him to live such a good life surely can be applied to us today because they are timeless, long-term and high quality. So that comes back to what you said. In terms of consistently living, and I play with this concept these days called the exponential career around, you know, you've got, it's got everything in there, you know, income, yes, but also the relationships, the wisdom, the continuous learning, these are all themes he and Buffett hammer home. And I'm going to deconstruct why they've kept such a consistent, you know, incredible contribution, relevance, and activism for such a long period of time. It's unher- We haven't seen it in sport, obviously, because there's a physical component there. It's just, it's just such a rare feat in nature for these two guys. It's so powerful. So long-term and high quality, I'm sure all of us would be very interested in unpacking that. Number three, holistic. So we'll see holistic in terms of they have a very balanced view of life, like I already said. Also, he's big on the whole multidisciplinary school of thought. I don't know if you've picked up that vibe before, Luke. Uh, when I say mm. multidisciplinary, it's it's kind of like what... That's what with ca- his mental models. His mental models and understanding all these disciplines. We'll do a bit of an episode on that. It reminds me a lot of Da Vinci and being multi, the Renaissance person idea. A lot of what we've learned about creativity from people like Ken Robinson, who we did before, previous series. So we'll understand this holistic approach, not just to 
intelligence and achievement, but obviously to life. So I think that's incredibly important. And then humble, number four. So the humility of, of him and Buffett, again, is quite remarkable. For example, always willing and actively seeking to destroy their bad ideas. Happy to become subordinate to Warren Buffett. People always asked him, he had more, he had a law firm and he was the guy. He was the managing partner and stuff from what I've read. And then he goes and becomes Buffett's kind of number two. And people always like, why are you, you know, number two? And he, he was always just very happy. He, happy. he goes, I've always been surrounded by people who are better than me. Mm. That's why I've been lucky. So just that humility, just the, the complete lack of ego is very, very good takeaway. And I think that's fantastic. And the number five is incidentally wealthy. Does that, what does that mean to you when I say incidentally wealthy? First thing I think of is wealth is not, is more of a byproduct yes. as opposed to yes, exactly. the core focus. Yes. Yeah, so one of the interviews I found, he says, I was working at the law firm. He got sick of dealing with clients and just catering towards what their money wanted him to do. He said, I wanted to have my own money. He's like, I don't really care about being rich. I just wanted independence and freedom. I think that's such a remarkable kind of goal. He goes, the, the billions was kind of not the goal. <laughs> and that's very powerful. I might be jumping ahead and we'll have this story again, but there's this story, but it's worth repeating. There's a story he retells about someone asking Mozart. It's like some guy asking Mozart, Mozart, how do you compose symphonies? I want to compose symphonies like you. And Mozart says, you're too, you're too young to compose symphonies. You're, you're 22. He goes, but you were composing symphonies when you were 10. And Mozart goes, yeah, but I wasn't running around asking people how to compose symphonies. <laughs> so there's a lot of, there's a lot of like, how do you become rich? Like Charlie Munger, how do you become rich? Like Warren Buffett. And even though they're in the investing kind of game, the capital game, it's not, I believe them. They're quite genuine in my opinion that they didn't actually really seek it. And that is very, 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 very powerful lesson. It, it kind of goes against what we're, when we're talking about Naval's how to get rich and that title, how Naval has a great podcast series. We loved it, but that it's very, you know, kind of not clickbaity, but just a very interesting title. What it, what it proposes, you know, whereas, you know, if you look at some of these people, they were really playing, they're really just playing. So mm. yeah, that's, that's day one. We'll get into uh, more of Charlie Munger tomorrow. I'm very excited and it'll be unpacking if you're willing, Luke, the key to long-term high performance and deconstructing his career. So look forward to unpacking that tomorrow. If anyone wants to just get a once a week, very short summary of the podcast, I've almost made it three lines lately. Just sign up to the Dorman newsletter. If you can't find it, it'll be in the YouTube description or the show notes at the Everything Joe link. So just jump on the link there. If not, we'll see you again tomorrow. Luke, how old are you, mate? I'm 27. You're 27. I'm 27. We met uh, a while ago now. Do you know what age Charlie Munger met Warren Buffett? We were talking about this um, before the call. Yeah, well, I only do just just <laughs> now, but it's quite shocking. 29, was it? Yeah, Buffett was 29. Mm. Do you remember how old Munger was? Early 30s, essentially. He was 35. 35. 35. It's the first comment there, because we're talking about long-term kind of uh, 
long-term high performance, long-term career today with reference to the great Charlie Munger and this podcast series. And I want to begin with that, that most people these days, it's actually I have to give credit to Gary V um, for this. I saw this line. He's he, obviously, he, he loves giving life advice. And he says to some guy, you worried about being 30? Like that's conditioning from like the previous generation. 30 is young, dude. 30 is young. Like 30 is not old. I, I'd, I'd bring that up because I think that is actually a very good and prudent point. And in, in the age of unparalleled social comparison, it's easy to lose perspective and some and things around age. Mm. These guys only met and Munger, Munger talks about it, right? So this is fascinating. He studied meteorology at university and dropped out because he went to join the military. And then he worked in law, but he felt cornered into it because he just had heaps of kids and he had to find like a decent paying profession. (laughs) (laughs) And then he goes, he made a very conservative gradual jump into his investing career. All right. A very conservative gradual jump. I explained, we explained yesterday that he wanted to, yeah, he wanted to not be under the cost from other people, his clients and stuff. He got a bit sick working for them. Clients, clients in luck of the draw really. So that makes good sense. Wanted to be independent, not necessarily rich, just independent. And he says he kept one foot in the law business until he was actually quite sure. I'm not sure exactly how long that was, but until he was quite satisfied and happy with the investing and the capital career, he says, until he fully jumped. I just want to take a second to appreciate that because uh, people are so rushed in this day and age to become someone, to get big, to, you know, not necessarily make heaps of money, but obviously a lot of people are in a rush to just have enough, I think, to feel free, to feel financially free. But it's crazy. Someone who's like a, a famous billionaire at the age of 35 was slowly making a conservative career change. Hmm. And I know I talk a lot about risk-taking and, you know, but it's funny, the psychology of risk-taking, that a lot of the best risk-takers are actually quite conservative, just conservative in the right way. With framing, we could do do a two-hour episode on the way you view uh, risk and the asymmetry. Oh, we, we will get to it at some point. We'll do a whole series just on risk. And then we'll draw an examples of how people like this have applied applied it in their own way. But yeah, I look at myself as a very, very conservative person. I just think about different currencies when I think about what matters. Most people, for no fault of their own, think mainly about money. Through no fault of their own, it's the way our culture operates. It always brings your focus to that metric. Mm. So that's the first thing. But we're talking about a long-term high performer here. The first thing that comes out to me is patience. So the patience of long-term high performance. And then the other thing he emphasizes is long-term learning. Long-term continuous learning. This gives me a little bit of a, like a, a buzz because I think, ah, constant student obviously is the name of our community. (laughs) (laughs) I think what a great testament to that. But I think I always love that name because of the similar philosophy that we given this idea that education ends at, at high school or, or university college level. And after that, we look at, we don't really think of learning as like a priority. We just think, oh, you'll learn a bit on the job. You'll learn more through your career. He and Buffett emphasize it, right? So if you want to look at what has made them who they are, and he says it, he says, what made uh, Berkshire Hathaway, which is their company, 
what made it thrive was different each decade. They had to learn and evolve each decade, right? It wasn't just, it wasn't just, oh, they found something that works and they just did that continuously. The reinvention and continuous learning, they say Buffett spends about half of his time reading and thinking, for example. That's just like straight from the mouth of, yeah, the guys who have done it better than anyone else that we know of, really. So that is a big takeaway. Have you ever, you know who Sir Alex Ferguson is? Blah, 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 blah. Sir Alex Ferguson is Luke. Can you explain? Very famous and successful football manager of Manchester United during their sort of, well, their glory is essentially. Their resurgence yeah. to the, the top of English football, much to the detriment of my beloved Liverpool. <laughs> From about 19, the 1990s and the early 2000s, he dominated. He was there for, I think, maybe 30 years, up to 30 years. It was at least 25. Good, good example long-term high performer. He won about 13 Premier League titles, which is just ridiculous, and two Champions Leagues and a whole bunch of other cups. The thing about Sir Alex Ferguson, I saw a video on him recently. So the first thing, he didn't win the, the title for the first five or six years he was at Manchester United. Mm -hmm. There was actually a bit of pressure. He was trying to bring it back. They hadn't won it for like two decades or something. And so he was trying to bring it back. The other thing about Sir Alex, if you look at him and this video deconstructed, he kept reinventing the football team. He actually found trends that were happening elsewhere in Europe that weren't yet happening in England, and he would bring them into the soccer team. So anyone who knows football knows sometimes it's very common for there to be two strikers. He would actually start bringing in the whole taking one striker, making an extra midfielder. Apologies to non-footballing soccer fans who that, that explanation is lost on. But he'd do that in the 90s with Eric Cantona. And then in the 2000s, he would change it to something else. And he had to keep doing that. He kept reinventing the team. And so it reminds me a lot of Munger and this emphasis on continuous learning and that what happened with Berkshire Hathaway had to update every 10 years. So like throw to you for a sec how important is continuous learning to you very important i mean being being a little bit younger we don't see the thing is it's it's funny because it's similar to i'm not sure if they've obviously seen this it compounds so it's not apparent when it's going to start really paying off or there's not a certain point you can say oh okay all this sort of side learning we do or this improvement is going to pay off at age 28 and a half. It just doesn't happen yeah, that way. Exactly. But, but I mean, it's, it's enjoyable and it's, it's essential. Like if you, for example, get a job and you just keep doing the same thing, you'll inevitably, if you're not continuously learning, you'll most likely just fall backwards because oh, things you change. Will. That's, that reminds me of Anders Ericsson and their book peak, how when you're not required to everyone else's performance flat lines mm. people say they're experienced but they've just spent 20 years performing to the same standard and they call it experience they actually haven't improved so that's an interesting thought but i'll ask you do you consider continuous learning to be a moral duty <laughs> i don't know if it's a i don't know if it's a moral oh to some degree i i know when i fall off the wagon so would you call it like stop reading as much or stop well, searching? You know, I feel not. You know so who good. does? You know who does think it's a moral duty? <laughs> Mr. Munger. Mr. Munger. 
He says, it's a good point. He says, you have a moral duty to continuously Mm. learn. Can we just appreciate the weight of that? A moral, as in it is wrong not to. And I believe the point when I was watching this interview, the point is around like you're an aware person, but you're also interacting with other people. So you impact them. Your ignorance or your lack of learning compromises customers, compromises other people in a way, right? Your weaknesses affect people. Your mistakes Mm. affect people. And so I believe it's on that level. He's like, you have this moral obligation, not this like, oh yeah, it's good to continuously learn. That's really nice. I can get towards my goals and tick them off. It's it's like, well, hey, but I think that's how, never be too serious, I don't think, but this is how seriously someone like that takes it. And this is, I don't think you ever hear like a famous athlete or something like there's a level of enjoyment, but it's different to like a hobby enjoyment, right? There is an intensity to their enjoyment. It's almost about rewarding, not not kind of completely playful maybe. And I think that you don't just casually become like Munger and Buffett. There is some dedicated virtue you have around something like continuous learning. And yeah, he says you must continuously learn, be interested have unusual advantages and avoid hard work specifically. So I like the last point. Do you like the, what does that mean? That can be uh, misinterpreted. What do you think that means? I think that means don't get, it's very sort of Tim Ferriss in the sense that don't get caught up in, in the, the things that are not important, like f- more, it's more speaking to focus. Yeah. I, I think it's a bit of that and a bit of the Naval. If you remember, it's hard to compete with you when you're playing and it looks like work Mm. to everyone else. Yes. So he's saying you have special advantages and you go into, so for example, this podcast, daily podcast, I I question, all right, should it be daily? I don't know, but there's not many people that would do it um, daily. Right. But for me, it's like, this is not really hard work, Mm. for example, or writing as much as I do is something that most people would think is like that painful right? And they're entitled to, but it doesn't really. So I, I, I definitely used to work harder in real estate and harder still when I was at university. Mm. I was working harder then because it was hard. It was grueling. This yeah. stuff is not quite as hard really in nature, yet there's actually more special advantages. So where for people listening, is there an over overlap of you've got a special advantage, but it's also maybe easier in energy wise for you to do not in terms of output hard work, but in terms of input hard work, I think it's more effortless. That's a good point. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I think we've hit, I think we've hit our capacity, but I think, yeah, that last point independence to how he's just so simple. It's the other thing. And he focuses, puts his energy into those things, him and Buffett and no bullshit with their personal lives, material lives too. I think it's powerful. But we will unpack more Charlie Munger tomorrow and we'll be going over his biggest career secret. And a hint for you, Luke, it's so simple you won't believe it. Oh, can't wait. (laughs) We can't wait. All right, well, a reminder, the Dorman newsletter is a short once-a-week summary of the podcast instead of daily episodes. It's in the description and bio. Apart from that, the biggest secret will be uh, unveiled tomorrow. What is Charlie Munger's biggest career secret? Luke, it's so simple, you won't believe it. 
I'm ready to try and believe it. I just told you what it is. It's so simple, you won't believe it. It's so simple. Right. You won't believe it. (laughs) I thought that was clever. It's simplicity. Oh, jeez. You're going to have to pick a brighter co-host. <laughs> if anyone's listening, who'd love to just take Luke's role. Uh, Sean Beaumont's just, got the job. Sean Beaumont's got the job. Just message me, DM me. Uh, I'm not hard to find. No, Simplicity, I, I got it. I think the power of simplicity. He loves this quote from Einstein. Right? Everything yeah. should be made as simple as possible, but not more simple. Mm. For example, if you this is another quote of his. If your proposed marriage contract has 47 pages, I suggest you don't enter. <laughs> Luke, I have a question for you. How how would you do how would you distinguish between simple and easy? Hmm. Are they the same thing or are they different? Simple that's a tricky one, actually. All right. Answer a simpler question. Lol. Are they the same thing? Not, I wouldn't say the same thing. Fun, isn't it? Yeah. So for example, I'd say maybe a smartphone is quite simple to use. It's, it's mm. quite simple, right? Yep. But it's actually, there's a lot of complexity that goes into it, for example. Mm. Whereas something that's easy is effortless to do. There's a quote he quotes a lot. He references a lot by Frederick Maitland. I don't know who Frederick Maitland is, but it's all it's all through Poor Charlie's Almanac. It says simplicity is the end result of long hard work, not the starting point. Mm. Simplicity to me is this pattern which keeps coming up in nature. Anyone who's entrepreneurial, works in products or designing educational experiences, stuff like that, knows how important it is to eventually end up when you're offering something to an audience or customer and you would know this from sales, something simple. Even though there's a lot of hard work and complexity and the big whiteboard sessions that have gone into it, we need to interact at the end of the day with simple solutions and simplicity. And Munger is absolutely ruthless on simplicity. I want to talk about it today on five levels within the next like eight minutes. (laughs) So like strap yourself in. But it really is at one point in, in Poor Charlie's Almanac, He's like, three points on career advice. Don't sell anything you wouldn't buy yourself. Don't work for anyone you don't respect and admire. And thirdly, work only with people you enjoy. He foregrounds that. He gives lots of different career advice in different places, but there's one section where he says, what if you just focused on those three simple things? The value of the simplicity is they're easy to remember. Therefore, easy to abide by. But you can see how it would have been quite complex to actually learn to foreground those three things above all else. Overall life advice. Number one, have low expectations. He is famous for having low expectations. <laughs> Two, have a sense of humor. He definitely has a sense of humor. Three, surround yourself with the love of friends and family. I just pause. You know, we've got those six things. Three are career specific. Three are life specific and you could live your whole life to a very high quality just by blocking out the noise and focusing on those six things agree or disagree 
Agree. Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's power in that, and I'll keep going. We took we alluded to this before, but he he's big on avoidance. It's like it's much more easy sometimes to just know what to avoid rather than what to seek. In Latin, they call it via negativa. It's a very famous kind of principle. So he has the other big three pieces of advice often. Don't do cocaine, don't race trains, and avoid AIDS situations. <laughs> was, I think he gave that at a Harvard speech or something. He hates multitasking. He's like, I avoid multitasking. He really likes to focus on one thing at a time. Mm. And he also avoids material excess. So there are three things that he avoids. And you can start to see material excess. This kind of reminds me of MVL a lot, which is episode one of this whole podcast. You start to see how that starts to create this very, you know, powerful, simple life. The other thing, what do I want to talk about? His investing criteria. Again, the investing criteria, and Munger's famous for being a, a billionaire, really one of the biggest things is staying within the circle of competency. Right? Him and Buffett, for example, have never invested in technology companies. They've bought Geico and Coca-Cola and all these things, but they've never embraced tech. That's probably why now they're very anti-crypto, anti-Bitcoin. It's very hard for them to kind of grasp that stuff. They haven't really grasped the internet, right? But they, they've done everything they've done despite not being able to grasp tech, but they just have three buckets when they invest. Yes, no, and too difficult to understand. And because of that, they keep things simple. They make their decisions mm. simpler. And the other thing, of course, Luke, most famously, nothing to add. Nothing, nothing to, add. to add. He's famous in all their Berkshire Hathaway kind of whatever. What are they? AGMs and stuff like that. Mm, yeah, yeah. Buffett loves to talk. All right. Buffett's a great talker. He's <laughs> yeah. very lively. And then they go, they let Buffett talk and then they go to Munger and he's very famous for just saying nothing further to add. You mentioned it in the first episode on Munger. He does not need to speak if there's no. nothing to say. He just does not care. Yeah, that's why it's so exciting when he starts to make a point and gets riled up is because you know it's something he strongly believes. You know he but feels it needs to be said. Warren Buffett, the famous Warren Buffett. Wayne Bennett, sorry. The same initials. The famous NRL coach is, is kind of a similar, and he's, he's kind of a similarly wise figure. He's just very minimalistic with words, hates the press thinks it's a waste, doesn't argue with fools. It reminds me of the same thing. This is just very powerful principles based on simplicity, but you can see how value there. He says, and you know how he's quite abrupt, Charlie Munger. This is pretty funny. He says, he's not abrupt. He's just in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> they complement each other so well. Those, really those, I think really those do. are the most exciting AGMs or, or whatever they're called, but to when, when you're talking about simplicity, if you listen to their actual investing advice and the rationale behind why they invest in Coca-Cola and all these companies is a, like you said, they can understand it. Like for example, they know people are going to be drinking more Coke 20 years in the future. They've made that analysis mm. and they're competent enough to make that same with chewing gum, same with Apple, all these sort of, but they stick to the simplest things and it's, it's true and it's, it's made them more money than they can possibly spend. Yeah, it has. It has. And then the thing with money, I think they talk about this too, is that it limits some of their opportunities now because they have so much buying power. There's not really, there's only certain opportunities they can really, you know, they, they can't, can't enter yeah. a small, anyway, we're getting technical on that. It's probably yeah. a bit beside the point. 
But yeah, simplicity is very powerful. And the idea of only investing in things you understand in, I wish people applied more to their lives. Mm. How true that is. By that, I mean, I didn't understand university when I went there, but I invested three years and a lot of money into it, for example. You know, I didn't, I mean, in saying that, naivety sometimes is a is a hidden joy, you know, the whole opening doors, I guess. So you can't be too deliberate, but... There is something to be said for simplicity, that's for sure. Mm. And it's very powerful. So to recap all that, because I think what we think about is very impactful for people. The, the, the career advice was don't sell anything you wouldn't buy yourself. Don't work for anyone you don't respect and admire. Work only with people you enjoy. The life advice was have low expectations. I've talked about that on the podcast before. Have a sense of humor. Surround yourself with the love of friends and family. Big avoids, don't do cocaine, race trains and avoid aid situations. Avoid multitasking, avoid material excess. Warren Buffett's had the same house for 50, 60, whatever it is, years. Stay in your circle of competency and then only speak when you have a point. And when you speak, you're in a hurry. <laughs> don't mince words. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us. For more insights once a week, like the very bare, like top, top insights, very Charlie Munger inspired. Just sign up to the Dorman newsletter. You can hit the link, everything Joe, the description or show notes, and you'll sign up for that. Still going over Charlie Munger, talking about how to outsmart smart people. We've got a few tricks up our sleeves for that. See you for that one tomorrow, Luke. See you then, Joe. I'm going to tell you how to outsmart smart people today, Luke. But you got to make sure, you got to promise that you use this power for good, not evil. Okay, I promise. And to do that, Inspired by Charlie Munger, this story he tells about the physicist Max Planck, right? Big detour, but I promise I'll bring it home. Now, Max Planck won a Nobel Prize and used to drive around doing all these talks at universities because he's, he, was, he was the man at that time. German guy, a uh, bit younger than Einstein, a bit, born a bit before Einstein. And his chauffeur was driving him around and listened to the speech so many times that by the 20th time, he remembered it off by heart. So he said, you're tired of giving the same talk, Mr. Planck. Why don't I give the talk when we go to Munich and save you? And Planck agrees to it. So the chauffeur gets up and verbatim delivers this speech on whatever complicated physics concept it was to, to the audience. And then someone in the, someone in the audience asks a question to the chauffeur and the chauffeur replies, I would have thought that the very intelligent people in Munich wouldn't ask such a basic and simple question. I'm going to defer to my chauffeur to answer that one. And then hands <laughs> over to Max Planck. <laughs> That's brilliant. Moral of the story, things that sound very intelligent and complex can be highly, how would I say, memorized in nature. The first thing you need to know about smart people is smart people are very heavily associated with box thinking. People who are very intellectual for their own sake. It won't surprise you, Luke. We've done a lot of thought leaders for context for anyone who's new to the podcast. Charlie Munger's the present one. We've done Naval, Ferris, Ken Robinson, Taleb. Another thing that Munger has in common with them, very critical of academics. <laughs> Seems to be a theme here. The poor, the poor academics, not quite as critical as the others. So on the, on the theme of like outsmarting smart people, 
we alluded to this before, he's big on the multidisciplinary approach. Multidisciplinary, if you think of disciplines like physics, art, science, right? He loves being across them. Historically, you look at Da Vinci, you look at all these people, it's been a major recipe for creativity, major contribution. Today, entrepreneurship, right? And what, like, for, oh, for example, Steve Jobs, the intersection of technology and the humanities was his thing. Apple is technology, it's science, but it's so artistic and, you know, well-designed and the marketing and everything. It's a blend. And Munger's hero is actually Benjamin Franklin, who was a major multi-potentialite himself, scientific, politician, writer. He, he was pretty insane. And Munger's quote is, uh, it's kind of fun to sit there and outthink people who are way smarter than you are because you've trained yourself to be more objective and multidisciplinary. All right. So he uses thinking. Munger's very famous for his mental models, right, Luke? Mm. So he uses thinking from all these different disciplines. He's got in poor Charlie's Almanac, the 25 psychological tendencies at the end. We'll talk about that in one or two episodes time. He loves the, the scientific and physics kind of thinking, just like Naval does and like the hypotheses and all that sort of thing. You know, the social sciences, he talks about that a bit and he uses them all as different ways of looking at a given problem. We've talked before about investors don't read investing books as an episode and that idea of, you know, just the broadness of thinking, incredibly broad, incredibly abreast, abreast with uh, history and philosophy and having very deep understanding and thinking about thinking. It's very kind of inspiring kind of way of learning. And so that's, is that clear what multidisciplinary means to you, Luke, and how Munger kind of applies it? Or is that link tenuous, like not clear to you mm -hmm. how it's impacted yeah, can, his life? Yeah, I can see having, <clears throat> excuse me, different models for a bunch of different disciplines gives him a, a much broader perspective as opposed to a highly academic person who kind of, I think one of those, which we'll talk about later is man with a hammer syndrome, essentially someone who's very specialized at something will look through only that lens, which is an fantastic point in a, in a sense, a disadvantage. Yeah. Man with a hammer syndrome is to, to every, the man with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail and the yeah. multidisciplinary is like having all the tools on your belt. It's mm. kind of like the, uh, the person selling hammers who sees your problem just tries to sell you a hammer no matter what your problem is kind of thing. <laughs> and that's, yeah. that's kind of what he means. And the reason why I think it's so powerful, this idea, it's a big thing that our good friend Gilly is big on, mm. interconnectedness. Munger's quite big on it too, which is fascinating. And if you think about multidisciplinary, it's how all these things are interconnected, not opposing. Education makes it seem like art is the opposite of science. Science is the opposite of religion. Interconnectedness is almost like the opposite. It's almost like they all bend around, like the branches of a tree. They all just come into the trunk and that that's the reality. He shares a beautiful quote in poor Charlie's Almanac by a guy called John Muir. When we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. That's such a powerful quote. In the Ken Robinson episodes, we talked about, you want to fix education. You got to fix the way a culture thinks about success. For example, you can't really compartmentalize problems. They're related to all these other things. And Da Vinci, when he painted, changed the way people painted. He didn't want to have these fixed boundaries between things because he saw everything was interconnected in nature, mm. right? He had a very different way of looking at the world and interpreting nature. 
So that's that powerful reality of everything's really connected, which Munger's obviously knows, like the stock market is connected to the way a society's thinking and putting their psychology basically into a market to be interpreted. It's not just finance, right? That's why he's big on psychology. So there's that level. There's a level of like it gives you a creative edge over the so-called intelligent people. And we've kind of dumped on IQ a lot when we're talking about Ken Robinson again. Mm -hmm. Um, We're becoming increasingly unpopular with each episode uh, in different sects of society. But the other thing I realized uh, when looking at this, looking for this episode, being self-taught, and being multidisciplinary seem to go hand in hand based on a couple of key historical examples. That's fascinating to me. So Charlie Munger says, to this day, I've never taken any course anywhere in chemistry, economics, psychology, or business. Yet he's unpacked 25 major psychological biases in his thing. He understands markets obviously incredibly well. He uh, clearly understands business to a, a quite a significant degree. And Benjamin Franklin, incredibly self-taught as well. And Leonardo da Vinci lacked a formal education. So there's a huge relationship between being multidisciplinary, which is also being creative, I believe, and entrepreneurial, and being self-taught. And I would argue that every entrepreneurial venture is its own self-taught education, I think, because you literally have to learn as you go and build and iterate. It's almost learning is almost the process you're going through. Eric Reese in the Lean Startup almost calls it validated learning, that that framework might be getting outdated, but it is a good way of thinking. Um, so apologies if this episode's a lot of very dense ideas, but maybe if we make it like relatable to someone today, how it applies, that might be a nice note to finish on. Does that sound good? Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. And I think the biggest example I think of leaning on my experience with constant student is I'm very excited when I see a young person who does any work in marketing these days. Uh, a lot of them start with social media, maybe videography, building websites. Those things seem to give people a lot of different perspectives on business on communicating with people, how to, how to make something compelling to other people. I think it's a very almost multidisciplinary kind of skill because it helps people learn and experience and see so much. And I noticed those people are really accelerating their capabilities, learning, personal growth, and basically entrepreneurial skills. It positions those people very well to do other things. Another personal example is working on constant student itself is very selfish of me because I like variety. So like I'd meet you and you teach me things about sales. Liam teaches me so much all the time about mindfulness and stuff. Scott McKillen, our friend at Espresso, teaches me a lot about very broad things about business, but also like growth and and marketing in his application of it. And, And that's just scratching the surface. There's so many. I've done workshops and workshops lately. I had Isabel, a young girl, do a workshop on social media. And that is almost part of it is my ongoing education and me gamifying it and cheating by actually running this sort of community gives me a continual multidisciplinary kind of exposure and education. And that gives me so many levers, I think, to pull and look at things through. It's very useful. It magnifies all these situations. 
I can also throw the example of Tim Ferriss, who I think is incredibly multidisciplinary, like his, even his angel investing career, because he was quite good at online marketing and stuff that made him an asset as an investor. There's stories about how he could, you know, invest in a company and then help them increase their conversions, like their sales by 80% by just looking at how their marketing was set up. Pretty valuable as an investor, if the company you've just invested in is now 80% more efficient in one part of its sales cycle. So it's like applying it, taking it from one area, being able to apply it somewhere else. Incredibly unique and high leverage. And it's one of the things that really has created the manga we know and revere. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I'm not sure if it's quite as similar, but I think a lot of the reason why he's such a big advocate of doing a project or, you know, starting a podcast for anybody is it has so many, so many sort of overflows to other aspects of your life. It does. Um, Yes. For like you're working, you're working life, you're getting better at communicating. Maybe you're being more aware of actually how you're speaking. If you have to listen back and then that could even overflow to the way you communicate with your family, your friends, everything. So there's, there's many different aspects to it. That's the, that's that's just the one beautiful, example. yeah, yeah. That's the beautiful, simple, actionable thing. A modern version is a very diverse project that brings a lot of variety into your life. Mm. Starting a podcast, maybe even more so than writing, but writing an online writing habit is, is great, especially if you interact with other people. Working in marketing, even if part-time, uh, even if it's just to learn, not so much about the money or working more, but just to learn. I think sales is great too, but you are right about any sort of like actual fully, you know, project that you are one of two or three people working on initially mm. naturally has a massive variety, incredibly valuable. So yeah, that's, whew, that's how to outsmart smart people. For anyone who wants just the consolidated summaries once a week at the podcast, just check out the newsletter, the doorman sign up in the description and show notes for that. We'll be back again tomorrow. What would you like to unpack tomorrow, Luke? Mm. Charlie Munger. Yeah, maybe why don't we do the number one psychological bias holding young people back? That sounds like a good one. Let's do that. All right, see you for that tomorrow. The number one psychological bias, according to Charlie Munger, that holds young people, everyday people back. A bit of a detour to start, Luke. Munger mentions that around a, a large percentage of uh, Hitler's forces were Catholic. Right? right, he makes a point around that. He, in his book, in Poor Charlie's Almanac, he mentions twenty-five or twenty-six huge psychological biases and things like that. The human mind and behavior is incredibly complex and nuanced. And the example around the, the Nazism and the Catholics is that we will make huge. It's an example of making huge moral compromises just because something is kind of easier. Mm or available, mm. you know, the, the option to go down this path is available. Therefore it becomes easier. So out of all of it, cause there were so many biases, I wanted to unpack this one in particular and what was most relevant because it's just, there's so much. And the quote I want to pin to the top here from manga, if you get a lot of heavy ideology young, and then you start expressing it, you are really locking your brain into a very unfortunate pattern. 
that line alone could shift the entire trajectory of someone's pathway. Reminds me of Anthony DeMello who says, you know you're brainwashed when you interject an idea and start defending it, but the idea is not yours. You've interjected it. You've taken it from somewhere else. For example, people who get behind some social cause, whether whichever side you sit on vaccines or some other social justice issue, and you get very, def- or the environment, and you get very defensive about something which wasn't actually your idea. And you start locking your brain into very dangerous patterns just because it's available and you have this desire to do it. So going specifically into availability misweighing tendency, as he calls it, you gotta remember that your brain can't use what it can't easily remember or what is not nearby. So it settles for available logic, available things. But it always forgets, and this reminds me a lot of Taleb, who we did before on the podcast, it, it very easily just obviously neglects what is not available and is not there as a very clear example. Making it very specific instead of being so uh, high level. Classic, I chose my career paths after high school out of the university book. All right, I wasn't, I wasn't able to assess all the options, I was only able to assess what was easily available. That alone, I think is incredibly relevant to a young person. Maybe someone later on, right? If you're working in a company or you're at work, you maybe have to market a new idea or you're choosing a new job, you will be thinking about what is available. And when I say that, well, for one, on one level, it's like, what are the job listings? What's open? You don't often think as a great guy, Dan Brockwell said on our friend James uh, Fricker's podcast, Graduate Theory, one piece of advice he gives is to go and create your own job. Like target a company you want to work at, have a bit of a check of what they got going on and suggest, I would love to do this and craft a narrative around why you're the person for that. And you'll be remembered even if you don't get the the job, good exercise, no downs. Scott McEwen always encourages people to do that too. So it's like, but we're biased towards what's available. But also we're biased towards, I guess, available is normally determined by what do we have current experience and momentum doing? Feels more available. Very hard to sit there and think what, apart from what I'm specifically been doing for a while, would I love to change up and go and do? This availability thing is everywhere. I mean, romantic relationships, this person is available. This person is nearby. This is known. I've personally felt this. Maybe you're with someone and you feel like, I don't know if this person is the best for me. Maybe they don't treat me the best, but who else would I be with? Mm. But the reality is you probably would meet someone better, especially if you freed up the energy to attract or, or find someone new, but so biased towards available. Like, what will I do Friday night? Well, people settle for what's available. We've talked about this. When was the last time you and I went and got a beer on a Friday night, Luke? It's been a while. Some it's, would say it's, it's, it's been, been a while. too long. <laughs> it's been a while. And I've probably, to all due respect to the friends listening who I did always enjoy your company, sometimes just the occasion was not that. You know, it felt like everyone was just filling a gap in their week with something that was just available to do. Mm. So much harder to put the imagination in to think of something else or find something else. Not making the case that any of this is alternate thinking is easy. Obviously it requires more effort and our brain is designed to just try and be efficient. 
So that's the grain yes. of salt. But I've found of all his biases, thinking about young people today, what they do in the morning, social media, it's available. The mind is so biased towards it. Yeah, you have a thought? I was just thinking because, I mean, that very nature of a, a bias means it's extremely difficult to overcome reverse overcome or, or see Resist. that aspect so mm -hmm. what's the i guess what's the key to seeing a lot of these things is it through awareness or what what do you what do you think look i probably don't have a magical answer i think awareness is always an incredible first step though the other thing that comes to mind is cultivating a discovery mindset and the idea that you're on a journey scott McEwen was talking to me the other day about he's been obviously managing a stage of espresso's growth and doing, you know, a lot of online advertising. And he says, Joe, I'm soon going to get bored of this. So I want to train someone else to do it so I can find the next challenge. Mm. And the default drive of his kind of path in life is the idea. It seems to be the idea of journey and discovery, mm. not really settling anywhere too long. Our good friend Gilly, much older, but once said to me, Joe, my responsibility in the law firm was to find the work we had never done before. Because once I, if someone would bring in new work that was outside of our scope, instead of saying we only do this, I would take it on and then I would do it. And then it was something that we had, I'd figure it out, very growth mindset. And that was something that then we could now have experience doing. And then I'd train other people to do it. I'm guessing not every month, I'm sure, <laughs> but like a new type within their niche of insurance law or whatever it was, just not like completely different types of law. I don't think that would work. But different types of cases within branches within the same tree, I think. And I think that's, that's kind of a good posture. Mm. I think that is very helpful. I feel it myself. I think everyone pushes you to go niche. So I normally offer one of those voices that says, Maybe we don't need to push so hard in terms of find a box, find a niche, find one job, one thing you're good at. Because everyone else is so forcing us in that way. I know myself that we are natural creatures. We are naturally, I think we're all naturally multidisciplinary at our core. And we all thrive with a bit of variety. It's just the trade-off for what you do of variety and, and obviously keeping your focus. I think it's just that balancing act. But you, yeah, who's going to run the experiment if not you? So I acknowledge the ease of staying with the same partner. I acknowledge the ease of just picking a choice out of the, the university book instead of thinking about something more interesting but ill-defined. I acknowledge the ease of going out to the pub every Friday. But if you remember that great Jersey Gregoric quote, easy choices, hard life. Hard, hard choices, choices, easy life. Easy life. I love that quote. Love that quote. That is, I think, relevant to this whole bias. It's not natural way to think. Might be difficult. You don't have a fucking choice. <laughs> <laughs> that should be a good incentive as any to get more value out of this by signing up for the Dorman newsletter in the link in the description or the show notes at Everything Joe, just a once a week summary. Um, I'm always going to bang, bang on about that. But apart from that, excited to continue with Charlie Munger. I think two more episodes should do us, Luke. What a man. What a job we've done packing 98 years of wisdom into seven, <laughs> 10 to 12 minute podcast episodes. 
He might be very pleased with uh, the simplicity. He would be very pleased with the simplicity. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, look forward to all tomorrow. I should obviously tease you all. Charlie Munger's investing approach in 10 minutes. I guess we know how long that one's going to (laughs) be. Ooh. Should be shorter. Keep it simple. Charlie Munger's investing approach in 10 minutes. Vice Chairman, I think it is, of Berkshire Hathaway. I'm looking at the notes, Luke. I don't think we have enough. I think it's more than 10 minutes worth here. <laughs> Fucking it. Wish us luck. Wish us luck. We're doing the series, and I just had to in- include this because I think it's relevant to all of life. Five points I think I've got here. Number one, it's light on financial yardsticks. That's crazy, right? Because we're talking about investing. It's actually light on this big financial kind of exercise. And he says in Poor Charlie's Almanac, it's actually more philosophical than anything else but also comprised of mental models and checklists. Very quickly, Luke, what's, what's a quick explanation of mental models and checklists in, in the Munger like, kind of dictionary? I haven't actually explored too much into that, but I would imagine it's just the way he views certain Just ways domains. of viewing things and then things he always makes sure he's, he's referencing. Checklists. Mm, yeah. Big on checklists. Saves him trying to remember things. Number two, staying within the circle of competency. Three buckets, yes, no, and too hard to understand. So you see, look, incredibly conservative approach. Yep. Right? He says that 98% of the time they're agnostic on the stock market, meaning they don't know what the hell is happening on the stock market and they don't know whether things are valued fairly. 98% of the time, the two most famous investors of all time. So what they do, what do they do? They look for no-brainers. The mm. main focus is on elimination and inversion powerful number three non-formulaic which relates to number one quote in other words if you have to choose one bet on the business momentum not the brilliance of the manager but very rarely you find a manager who's so good that you're wise to follow him into what looks like a mediocre business so it's like there's exceptions there's ifs buts and whens it's not a precise formula Mm. It's principled, but not a precise formula. If they don't have a formula for that, all these other things we try to create formulas for in life, maybe growing an audience, nailing a career, ending up with this much financial freedom at this age, a kind of bit of a gimmick, I think. I think that's a fair enough extrapolation. There's another quote. It says, if you don't get elementary probability into your repertoire, you go through a long life. You go through a long life like a one-legged man in an ask-king contest. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, it's all about understanding odds. This is why I kind of drive this idea with you a lot in the podcast around look at life like an investor. That will make no sense unless you've listened to a lot of our previous episodes with Taleb Naval, but it reinforces that. Like everything is a probabilities. Will this be the best guy to jump on the podcast episodes with me or not? There's no formula. You just have to give him a go. <laughs> and, you know, jury's out on that one. Uh, <laughs> but he points out a lot of incredible businesses that started out with experimentation. So they're non-formulaic as well. Kellogg's started with not knowing what they were really doing. Some guy called John H. Patterson created the cash register just to solve his local problem. Ended up being a historical kind of revolution. So that's worth considering. Number four, probably my personal favorite, incredibly cautious of his own success, always looking to destroy his ideas like Edison and Einstein. So if you ever listen to his YouTube videos, even though the guy's a billionaire, 
created a timeless legacy. He always emphasizes his luck and says if he was born again, it would be unlikely that he could replicate it. I think you mentioned that from Warren Buffett once as well on the pod. It's like born in a different era, he'd probably be useless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Born born in a different era, both of them would not be thriving like they are based on the fact that they would have to get into physical. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. you know, whereas most other kind of quote unquote successful people would sit there and say, well, these were the principles that really led to my success. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he always says like the wisdom is emphasizing what you don't know. That is what actually enables you to thrive. What a counterintuitive idea. I always think of like people who, who are intellectual being all about what they know and that's where their whole identity is. Whereas wisdom seems to veer into the other direction, but wise person and intellectual people can sound equal on equal par. But I think wisdom to me are really those people who know how much they don't know. And Munger and Buffett are like that. That's what keeps their minds clear from most biases, except maybe when it comes to understanding crypto. (laughs) Well, they would strongly, uh, strongly disagree against crypto. Oh yeah. Even worry if it defies their principles of staying within their circle of competency. Yeah. You have a thought, Luke? <laughs> oh, just on the cautious of success. I think I'm not sure if it's a specific bias that Charlie goes into, but he's very aware that when you get a certain level of success, it can essentially simply get to your head yes. and you can't see your own faults or because you have so many people sort of going along with what you're going along with simply because, you know, you're in a position of um, influence or something like that. They can that can lead to the downfall in the sense that they can't recognize. I gave you that very personal example around the book with 18 and Lost. Mm. How we got Amazon bestseller, but there were all these factors. Like we had eight authors, so they could all invite their friends to buy it on the launch day. It was a very digestible concept. My next book won't be as an everyday kind of concept. So you got all these factors. I did it with Byron as a way big, very big following of the target market, right? You got all these, all these factors. The video did very well on LinkedIn. You know, these like, if I was like, oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm the guy, I just know about books and going to the next one. Like, it's very clear that, you know, there were all these different factors. And I think it's like, it's very hard to replicate exactly something you've done before, even if you were the one to do it. Cause like Taleb's teaches us fooled by randomness. So much of it is actually these thousand doors, little things we had no control over, actually the biggest Mm. factors. That's why I play that investing metaphor. You just got to be right place. Keep firing shots. Something will come off. Yeah. Yeah. We like to just point at something and be like, oh, that's the reason. Yeah. 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 This is what I did. I wrote it incredibly well. Yeah. yeah. And then you put that mental in that box and you're like, yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah. Number five, and we've done well for time. You won't believe this. Caring little, low expectations. One of the biggest things I take away from these guys. If you hear him, him and Buffett never shut up about, we're so lucky. We work with people we love every day. We keep it simple. We enjoy our relationships. We don't fight much, if at all. And, and we love, you know, family is the most important thing. And because of that, all the investing stuff and the buying companies and all that is just this like luxury. It's just this bonus. And it's just continually gone. Well, it doesn't always go up like the last decade or so. They haven't been as good as they used to be and they haven't beaten the S&P or whatever it is, but it's just that low expectations philosophy. Like personally, I, I employ that. 
I, I think like we're launching a new program now. If it's constant student, I kind of think, well, we're going to try it. If this doesn't come off, I guess we'll find something else and it'll be meant to mm. be. As much as you can keep that low expectations thing, it doesn't mean you don't do stuff. You know, like dream big, expect little, I think, and just be like content with the process. And because they have so much joy in the everyday, it's kind of like if we do this podcast episodes forever, each one only got five people listen to it. We'd still enjoy a, com a conversation of this modality anyway. Mm. So like everything's just like low expectations. And they seem to have low expectations more specifically around the things that are not important as well. Powerful, powerful mm. pickup, powerful yeah. pickup. Well, I want to honor the 10 minutes for the sake of a YouTube authenticity, <laughs> but we will do one more big bumper episode. That was good. I thought that was good. We will do one big bumper episode on Charlie Munger's approach to aging tomorrow to wrap this all up. We'll see you guys then. What worries you about growing old? <laughs> what worries me about growing old? Not being able to run. Not being able to run. Anything else? Um, losing mental facilities. Mental facilities, yep. Cognitive yeah, decay and decline. Yeah, Becoming yeah, Becoming yeah. senile <laughs> and intolerable. Yeah. Unreliable. You make a good old person. <laughs> those are the two i can think of <laughs> okay next question what are you looking forward looking forward to hopefully sharing experiences with sort of other people or people that are sort of my age for example and i would hope that i would have accumulated some wisdom like gilly and like mr munger to then when i get older hopefully be able to share something with the younger generation that that kind that excites me. Poor Luke's almanac. <laughs> I certainly have another hundred years to go before that's going to be the case. Me, but... Longevity research is coming along. You should go to a ripe old age and you run and stay in shape. Well, I want to divert obviously to Charlie Munger last episode on him and his approach to aging. In the book, Poor Charlie's Almanac, it's very insightful. Actually, really, the the name of the episode is a bit deceptive because it's largely he's very inspired by Cicero. Do you know do you know who Cicero is? No, I don't. Well, Cicero is one of the old Roman emperors, if I'm not mistaken. And he says that Cicero believed in continual improvement as long as breath lasts. Wow. I don't know if I've ever told you that story about how Einstein died still scribbling equations in his deathbed. It's no, it's that kind of idea. The real audience of none right till the end. Yeah, well, really doing things out of intrinsic interest. And Cicero believed philosophy should be explored for as long as possible too. I think I, me and Cicero would have really gotten along. I don't really drink yeah. beers anymore, but I, if he asked me to go for a beer, I would go for that beer. <laughs> Third point, Cicero saw nothing to be feared in death. Because mm. it's either an eternal afterlife or no pain to be retained. It's almost like, do you fear going to sleep? right? It's kind of like that. That's the worst case scenario. Alan Watts says a similar thing, by the way. Anyway, to quote Munger on the great Cicero, to Cicero, it is unworthy that an old man would work to improve only what he would live to enjoy. For him, the only life worth living is dedicated in substantial part 
to good outcomes one cannot possibly survive to see. I just want to, I'm pausing deliberately to let that sink in. I want to reread that. To Cicero, it is unworthy that an old man would work to improve only what he would live to enjoy. For him, the only life worth living is dedicated in substantial part to good outcomes one cannot possibly survive to see. Apart from that question I love, what would you do if you only had five years to live, Luke? Mm. One of my other favorite questions, I use it a lot in reflection settings and constant student, is what would you work on that you would never get credit for and never see the end results of in your lifetime? What would still be worth working on anyway? That's such a good question. Yeah, I really love that question. I take full credit for it. But is that Cicero idea, I forgot that that was a Cicero quote, to be honest, but is that idea of self-transcendence, about going beyond yourself, even going a bit beyond legacy, because legacy is still very a bit self-indulgent, to be honest, and thinking about what should exist just because it should exist, and the complete deflation of the ego in answering that question. Because when you take that attitude, there's no real downside the ego forces you to think in the opposite way. The ego forces you to think, what can I see myself achieving right now? <laughs> and mm. that makes for a very unhealthy, unsatisfying life. Whereas this is a completely different. This is why I'm very critical of the notion of success in our culture, because most success thinking and a success aspiration is a complete diversion from that path. Because it implies that you would get to see the, the fruit of your yield and realize it. success. Sorry, well. who defines success? Well, I don't question. think anyone defines success as you want to work on this podcast, but I only want it to blow up 50 years after I'm dead or something like that. <laughs> I don't think that's most people's thinking is, is my point. Anyway, that's, that's, that is its own, you know, two hour seminar, that quote, <laughs> but also Cicero early retirement, unthinkable to Cicero. I think it probably, this is starting to be clear as to why I think Gilly would really uh, agree with that one. Even though he retired from the main career pursuit of law, he remains very much active and involved in a great number of things. No passive existence there. To Cicero, if you live right, the inferior part of life is the early part. The inferior wow. part of life is the early part. As in your learning early on and your oh, there's, there's like, I did on. I did episodes on this on the happiness curve. I think it was episodes thirty or something. We're at like mm. two sixty or something now, so we're way. Yeah. But that was about the curve. Actually, older people tend to report higher states of well-being than younger people. Mm. To be honest, and midlife is the kind of pit. And the reason going back was a very manga-like idea. People have lower expectations after midlife when they realize, oh, I'm not going to be this hotshot kind of business or career whatever dominant best-selling author or whatever it is, all mm. the things you, yeah, you think you're going to be when you're our age. Mm. I remember when I read that, that's why my philosophy is so detached from material achievements. Not completely, I'll be honest, but it's because I remember, remember reading that. I was like, oh, this is why everyone's lives are so kind of, can be so painful. It's like, what if I just relinquish that now? And so that's how why, much of, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say how much of that is related to 
the fact that you know that when you achieve that thing, not much else is going to change. Yeah. Oh, it's so important. Hmm. You talked about it with the property. I talk about it with the book, getting a nice few sales when it launched the next week felt like I did the week before it. Hmm. Great. We go again. So pursue the infinite game. It just keeps getting better and better. According to Cicero, the best a young person can hope for is to get old before he dies. I think that is meant not in a time sense, but in a mat maturation, like seeking wisdom sense, to be honest. There's another good quote here from Cicero. The best armor of old age is a well-spent life preceding it. A life employed in the pursuit of useful knowledge, in honorable actions, and the practice of virtue, in which he who labors to improve himself from his youth will in age reap the happiest fruits of them, not only because these never leave a man, which reminds me of the things Munger prioritizes, right? Family, avoiding cocaine. <laughs> not even the extremist old age, but because a conscience bearing witness that a life was well spent together with the remembrance of past good actions yields an unspeakable comfort to the soul. What's your interp Do you have any interpretation of that? It's written in a very Marcus Aurelius kind yeah, of way. No, I, I know, I know you love that kind of prose. Did no, you capture I, I any am. of it or did it gloss? You can be yeah, gloss a little bit to tell you the truth. Yeah. All right. That would be the case for many listeners. So take away this, the best armor of old age is a well-spent life preceding it. So living well, hmm. if you want to protect the downside of an unhappy future or a bitter old age, and you're worried about growing old, the antidote is to live well. Now there's a Jerry Seinfeld interview on Tim Ferriss show. Jerry Seinfeld's about 69 or 70. He goes, Tim, to be honest, I think that sounds like JFK, not Seinfeld. Goes, <laughs> I could die right now, right now. Um, he's like, I could just, I've had the best ride. I've had the best ride. And I don't mean that to say be a celebrity like Jerry Seinfeld, you'll be happy and have no regrets, but just like the idea that you could be content with what you did. To me, it looks like that I actually consciously served people instead of serving some sort of egoic game, some narrow-minded view of success that I opened doors for others. You know, I consider this, I think about this, like 5% of my thinking is, ah, oh, how would someone a hundred years from now listen to this kind of thing, even if they don't thinking in that way is a very calming focus takes your mind out of like the immediate and that's relieving. So I think of it in that way, living well, you know, every true holistic sense, not putting things off. I also love this quote from Benjamin Franklin that he puts in life's tragedy is that we get old too soon and wise too late. And I can second that by that reminding you of that thing, that manga thing, you have a moral obligation to pursue wisdom. Mm. Leonardo da Vinci, if anyone knows who he is, he considered wisdom to be the real currency, the real, real form of wealth. That's why he was so avoidant of like, he would take on a contract to paint something and then never paint this guy's wife or whatever, even though he agreed to it, to agree to money. He didn't care about it. He's like, wisdom was the real pursuit. Um, and it feeds into... Well, this my takeaway is you want to age well, seek wisdom, not advancement. And that's this manga thing. He's like, oh, these people want to advance their careers. It's probably the wrong focus. 
<laughs> right? He, he says it like that. Like the people are like, oh, I want to be, I want to be successful. I want to be someone. How do I, because it doesn't look like the mongers and the Buffets really thought in that way. They were just locked in a pursuit that was, you know, stimulating to them mm. and rewarding to them. So it's a, it's a blueprint. Look, I think we fulfilled our promise for the manga series. It's timeless. It's a recipe for long-term uh, kind of happiness and high performance. High performance meant in a very broad sense. Uh, I encourage people to go deeper. Just YouTube clips of, of manga are so enlightening um, to hear any of those points out in, in fullness. It's mm. just a phenomenal human being. I really do think of the one thing I do think, and I think it's a consequence of the time they were born in, I feel like if they were born again today, they would probably seek a kind of career pathway or calling that had a more direct, maybe, impact on people. Because they, they place a big emphasis on morals and, and family and stuff. But their core business has been kind of really, you know, buying businesses and investing in companies and stuff, which I know is meaningful and impactful in a different way. But I think also that's a consequence of being born in the 1920s and 30s. If they were born today, I think they would find ways to actually have a more direct impact. But obviously they have really mainly touched people's lives through their wisdom mm. and perspective. I, I, the biggest thing, well, just one of the things that sticks out is, as to why I love listening to them is you, you go to them for that seductive thing like, um, yeah, the you money. find out about investing and how do they value companies and yeah. what, how do they think of it? And then you could listen and it's literally all just wisdom. Yeah. It's about yeah. human nature, their relationships they have with, like they talk so fondly about the relationships they have with all the other businesses and the yeah. heads of, yeah, like, they, they know them. those people. Yeah, they love them. They, they yeah. love those people. They know per, every business that they buy, they know, like. It's a story. Uh, yeah, they always talk about the fact that they wouldn't, yeah. they wouldn't, no matter how much money they would get from a purchase, they wouldn't buy the company if they didn't feel right about the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and, like, and the management. It's more and, philosophical than it is financial for them. It's more yeah, and, and intuitive I, to them, not yeah. like the accounts alone. I, yeah. I would encourage people to listen to like just an example of one of the businesses they bought. It was the basically furniture company anyway there's oh, a whole the backstory lady. it's a lady yeah that's an incredible yeah, that's a great incredible story. story yeah i love um, that one yeah i'll try and find yeah. it and link it and the, the final thought i want to add it's in them talking about the wisdom you really get the initial thing you were looking for mm. anyway but that logic might be a jump for people in seeking the kind of maybe the, the, the practical business related insight that they have and seeing them talk about something that's perhaps adjacent to that broader wisdom, they are actually giving you unbeknownst to you the investing stuff, but you need to make yeah. that link for yourself. And I'll return to the story I told in the first episode on manga, a young man that manga tells, sorry, but the young man goes to Mozart and says, I want to create symphonies like you, Mozart. And Mozart says, you're too young to create symphonies at the age of 22. And he says, I'm 22. You were 10 when you were creating symphonies. And Mozart says, yes, but I wasn't running around asking people how to compose symphonies. 
For more insights on the podcast, please jump into the show notes or description. Sign up to the Dorman newsletter at the Everything Joe link. Apart from that, remember, as always, I haven't said in a while that the best way to open a thousand doors for you is to concentrate on opening doors for others, not asking others how they unlock theirs. We'll see you in the next series. Thanks again to Luke. Excited to continue the journey. Thank you, mate.